Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles, tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Green Chili Adventure Gear is also the exclusive USA distributor for Outback Motor Tech, a Canadian company that specializes in high-quality protection for motorcycles. Visit them at www.greenchiliadv.com. Greenchiliadv.com. On today's episode, we're solving mysteries. Okay, maybe that's stretching a little bit. We're going to demystify a few things, okay? So the first thing we're going to demystify is countersteering. If you can't explain countersteering to your buddy and tell them exactly what the physics are behind it and how it works and why they should be using it, and in fact, they are using it even if they think they're not, well, today's episode may help demystify that for you. And even if you can, you're liable to pick up some things from it anyway. And we have the perfect person to explain countersteering on today. You'll have to stick around to find out who. The other thing we're going to demystify is your charging system on your motorcycle. We're going to talk about what it is overall. We're going to talk about your battery, your stator, and your rectifier. And we're going to demystify that whole thing and give you some basic instruction how you'll be able to grab a multimeter and test your own electrical system. So stay with us. If you go out riding anywhere on your own, you'll need to know this because just throwing that multimeter in your pack will give you so much power after today. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. This is Ted Simon. Um, I'm on Adventure Rider Radio. I'm very happy to be here. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, serving adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll need a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, and get this, it comes with a lifetime warranty. It's the pump we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Visit them at CyclePump.com. That's CyclePump.com. Countersteering is a term that you hear often in motorcycle circles. Some people will debate about it. Some will understand it. Others will want nothing to do with it. Some people say they don't want to get into countersteering. They don't want to learn it. The fact of the matter is, though, if you're riding a motorcycle, you're countersteering. But it's important to understand what countersteering is, how you do it, and how it can help you in certain circumstances. So to do this today, we got the person that, in our minds, was the best for the job. David L. Huff has written several books. Uh, by the way, it's, it's spelt Hugh, but he says it Huff. Yeah, my name is David L. Huff, which is H-O-U-G-H, but it's pronounced Huff. And... Um, uh, I'm retired from Boeing after 36 years or so, and I've been motorcycling for something more than a million miles uh, over 50 years. Um, I've uh, gotten into writing for uh, on motorcycling issues, primarily skills issues. I wrote for Motorcycle Consumer News for many years, and before that it was Road Rider Magazine. Uh, currently, I'm back writing for MCN, uh, contributing the... Uh, the skills column called Proficient Motorcycling, and also the Street Strategies column. And I'm also contributing to BMW Motorcycle Magazine. And uh, once in a while, somebody uh, gets me to do something else. I do go to rallies and give presentations. Uh, Lately, I've gotten more into the science of measuring the danger of motorcycling. 
I have uh, several books out, uh, Proficient Motorcycling, More Proficient Motorcycling, Mastering the Ride, uh, Street Rider's Guide, um, and The Good Rider, and one that's going to come out soon, which is Six Secrets, which each little column are six little secrets on a given subject. David, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I got to tell you, I'm really pleased to meet you finally because I read Proficient Motorcycling and, uh, I learned so much from it. I mean, it was it was really, it's the type of book that I like to go back to and reference because it just gives us so much information about riding the street. I didn't really realize for many years what that book really was. Uh, when I worked for Boeing, I was in uh, flight crew training. And in flight crew training, uh, the pilots who go on planes are carrying this big black bag. Do you know what's in there? No. I assume yeah, they're lunch. No, that's the operations manual. Huge, big, multi-volume operations manual. So when you're in your hotel room the night before, you could say, well, I think I'm going to read up on, on hydraulic abnormals, you know. Uh, and so they study that. And if there's any question about how the airplane functions, you know, they can whip out the operations manual. And uh, I finally realized that that's basically what proficient motorcycling is. It's an operations manual for motorcycles. And, uh, and I, I know a lot of people, or I've heard from a lot of people who have said, you know, every winter they get it out and just kind of reread it the same way that the pilots would jack up their knowledge by reading the uh, operations manual. Yeah, that, that's exactly the case with me. A million miles. You've been riding a long time. You've ridden uh, a lot of places, obviously, covering that sort of mileage. What type of riding have you done? Mostly uh, traveling. Well, I started out commuting to work. That's really how I got into motorcycling is that I lived on Bainbridge Island, and there's a ferry system that gets you to Seattle, which is always jugged up. And so uh, if you want to take a car across, you better arrive on a weekday morning, you know, at 4 a.m. or something. <laughs> so I could get on the bike. I could, uh, I could zip straight to the terminal, uh, go to the head of the line and board and always make it across. So that's how I got into it. So I commuted for many years by motorcycle every day. There are some people at work who didn't know that I even owned a car. And uh, so that got me into, uh, you know, looking into how motorcycles function. And, and uh, eventually, of course, I realized that it's a lot of fun to just get on your bike and not have to commute, just to go ride somewhere. And uh, that got me into longer and longer uh, riding. I think the first long trip I did was to... Uh, Denver to the uh, Pikes Peak Tour, and uh, I did that on a 450 Honda. Uh, when I got home, I started considering what, how saddles are made, <laughs> you know. And uh, eventually, I, uh, I started traveling more, and my wife and I have traveled uh, in the Southwest. Uh, we also eventually got into sidecars and ended up traveling across country on sidecars. I've uh, I've gone to Europe uh, several times. I've traveled in. South Africa, New Zealand, Brazil, uh, and of course a bit of Canada. How did you get into writing about motorcycling? Well, I was, um, at the time, I worked at Boeing, and Boeing uh, Recreation had a club. They sponsored various social clubs uh, for the employees, and one of those was a motorcycle club. And so they asked me if I would contribute some, some skills tips, and, and I started doing that. And um, eventually, I decided to offer some of these tips to Road Rider magazine. And uh, fortunately, I had uh, an editor who could help me, you know, 
clean them up to the point where they actually made sense. And so I eased into it that way. I never did take any professional writing courses. I just kind of eased into it, writing, writing about skills and uh, what we laughingly call safety. So, uh, <laughs> what do you mean, what we laughingly call safety? Well, motorcycle safety is sort of like healthy corn dogs. <laughs> you know, it's an oxymoron. <laughs> like combat you know? safety or something. Combat safety. Yeah. Uh, well, it's even worse. Ma- Marines in the U.S. found out a few years ago that uh, Marines returning from Afghanistan were more likely to die in a motorcycle crash than in combat. Wow, that's that's a, a depressing thing to talk about on this show. But but I mean, but that that, that, almost, that almost sounds pessimistic. Do you, do you think that there's a problem with motorcycling? Oh, definitely. Motorcycles are not safe, um, and uh, and those are some issues that I've been dealing with this past year in motorcycle consumer news, talking about uh, statistics. How do we know what we know? You know, how do we measure the danger of motorcycling, and what does it look like? Um, we have said, for instance, that mile per mile, if you compare driving a motorcycle to driving uh, a passenger car, uh, motorcycles are about 27 times more likely to kill you. In other words, you are 27 times more likely to die riding a motorcycle than driving a car mile for mile in the U.S. of A. Well, it turns out that there was a faulty measurement in there. It isn't really 27 times. It's really 30 times. <laughs> I was hoping you, know? you were going to say something else, but I also heard a statistic. I think it was by, I think it was Malcolm Gladwell in one of his pieces that he did where he was saying mile per mile walking is more dangerous than driving an automobile. Probably is. Uh, there are a lot of pedestrians, and sometimes I compare pedestrian fatalities to motorcycle fatalities because there are some similarities. Uh, it kind of depends on the speed at which you get hit, you know, as to whether you survive or not. But, uh, yeah, motorcycling, uh, motorcycle safety, we've used that term for a long time. It was created by the motorcycle industry, basically, and it just happened to dovetail nicely into automobile safety and airplane safety and, you know, railroad safety and so forth. And so we use the term safety to mean that we're trying to somehow manage the danger. But uh, that has come to mean you can be safe. Um, and if, if you are safe, that means you are 100 uh, percent guaranteed not to have a problem, right? If you're safe, that means the absence of all risk. Well, there are a lot of people coming along say, well, but what if I run with my headlight on a high beam? Will I be more safe? You know? Uh, So, no, the answer is, you know, it's the wrong term to use. We should talk about danger but that's really off the subject of, well uh, well I, I mean i guess what it is is you understand that what whatever you're doing has a certain amount of inherent danger in any, any activity whether you're going kayaking or hiking or yes. or whatever it is you do and it's mitigating the uh the danger really of, of whatever yes. activity it is i mean really it's semantics isn't it yeah it is well it's more than semantics because uh safety does not have a quantifier in other words you can't be less safe or more safe. You're either, if you make it home in one piece, you were safe, right? Right. But danger can have um, an adjustment. So we can measure danger. We can say, well, it is more dangerous, say, to ride at night in the rain, you know, than on a sunny morning. You know, we can measure the danger. So uh, it is more than just semantics. Uh, uh, Terms mean something. I just contributed an article to MCN about what's in a name and talked about uh, a woman who was really, really insulted because she has ridden on the back of 
motorcycles for years and years and years, her husband, you know, operating the bike. And, uh, and so online, some guy says, well, you're not a real motorcyclist. Well, she felt she was just as much a real motorcyclist as Mr. So-and-so, you know, Mr. Mr. Self-Appointed Expert. Uh, but uh, they both used the terms wrong because what they said is motorcyclist and the definition of motorcyclist is vague. You know, mm. are, are you a motorcyclist if you own a museum with 200 motorcycles and never ride any of them? Does that make you a motorcyclist? See, so, so we need to use terms a little more cleverly. Uh, other, other industries use terms better than motorcycling does. We tend to kind of just ride along and accept whatever is said. But uh, if we use the term motorcycle driver and motorcycle passenger, would it not be obvious who we're talking about? But when you're talking about danger, and, and you said mentioned about, you know, if you're riding home and you made it home without a problem, then you were safe. And you were saying that, but danger, can, the, the uh, amount of danger can change or the degree of danger can change. Of course, if you ride at night or ride in the rain, couldn't something you do also change the degree of danger? So in other words, let's say it's dark and you have auxiliary lights. Just then you've changed the degree of danger that you're oh, riding Oh, absolutely. You could, I mean, this, these are some of the things that we can do. Um, there are certain things on the motorcycle that we can do to make it, you know, better for the, what we're doing. And there are also uh, behaviors that we can adjust for our motorcycling, and we can say, well, if I do this behavior, uh, I will reduce my personal danger. So, uh, and these things are testable, and uh, I have a science advisor who's been coaching me, well, beating me over the head for the <laughs> last five years to try and comprehend science, and... Uh, uh, you know, be able to talk fairly intelligently about what the numbers are and what they mean. When you say science, so, are you talking statistics? Well, I'm saying statistics are part of science. Uh, what science does is science says, well, uh, let's develop a theory. You know, for instance, on counter-steering, uh, I said to my science friend, well, you have to turn the front wheel in the direction you want to go or it won't go. And he said, how do you know this? I said, well, it's obvious to me. He said, have you tested this theory? <laughs> I said, well, no. <laughs> so he said, well, let's develop your theory. What is your theory? And so I wrote the theory down very carefully. I went out and bought a $49 bicycle from Goodwill, and we took it out to a parking lot, and I had adapted the machine so that I could lock the front end in straight-ahead left or right positions. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, so the test, well, the theory was that you that a two-wheeled vehicle uh, cannot turn unless the front wheel is turned in the direction that, it, that you want it to go. So he took the bicycle and we locked the front wheel straight ahead and he leaned it over as far as it would go uh, till the pedals were scraping on the ground and rolled it on a straight line. And guess what? Eventually it started to turn. Okay, mm-hmm. so it would in fact turn but the radius of turn was about the length of a football field. <laughs> you know? so, right. so it shot a hole in my theory that, um, uh, that you can turn a motorcycle without turning the front wheel in the direction you want to go. But if you want to go around a right-hand corner, you really need to turn the front wheel to the right. You know? So I learned a lot about that. So scientific, uh, uh, you know, the science of learning something is to develop a theory and the theory must have certain attributes to it and it you must be able to disprove it uh you know and and obviously you need to not lie about things uh, so there are various 
studies that have come out over the years that actually are prevarigations. And so uh, a lot of people believe in them, but uh, if, if they're incorrect scientifically, if they have holes in them, uh, we must learn to ignore them. And the motorcyclists tend to be, uh, we shrug our shoulders and say, well, who cares? You know, well, but we should care because there are laws that are passed and, and uh, requirements that we have upon us and government pays attention and says, oh my God, there were X number of motorcycle fatalities. We've got to do something, you know, and, um, and then make some assumption that what they do will actually solve the problem. So, so yes, it's I've been... E- it's easy to fall into, though, isn't it? I mean, if you, want, if you want to go soak up the sun on the beach, I mean, you don't want to worry about, you know, access for the oh. beach and all that. You just want to soak up the sun. That's right. We want to get on our bikes and ride. Yeah. We don't want to eat all those. But you can't because, as I wrote an article in MCN a while back, it, it, it was called Hitchhikers. And it was all the people who hitchhike on our bike without our permission. You know, uh, in the U.S., the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration, the Motorcycle Safety Foundation, the Bureau of Statistics, you know, all these people are clinging on to motorcycles and you have to take them along on your ride because what you do, uh, you know, is not just what you want to do. It's what you're allowed to do. Right. You know? So, um, yeah, we, we, uh, <clears throat> we motorcyclists tend to be a bit on the naive side because it's just so much fun to hop on the bike and go and not have to worry about anything. But sooner or later, uh, you know, it, it hits the ground and sooner or later we have to consider some of these things. Well, this is sort of a good segue into talking about because you had already mentioned counter steering. <laughs> so counter steering is, is one of those things. And David, I have the feeling like we could go on on a lot of things. <laughs> but, <laughs> we could go on for hours. Yes, you're right. <laughs> so let's, let's stay with counter steering for today and, and then maybe we'll have you back and do another one. But so sure. for counter steering, and, and I learned it from you, um, mm-hmm. from your books, uh, the, the understanding of how counter steering works. So let's start off with with an overview. What is counter-steering? Well, before we get into that, I, I have to make a statement, and you can quote me on this. Life is always more complicated than it is. Hmm. Okay? So mm-hmm. when we think we understand something, uh, you know, lots of times we are kind of naive about what really is going on. Uh, so what counter-steering is, is counter-steering is steering to control role. Okay. Steering uh, to control roll. Explain that. Yeah, now, roll is what, is what probably most people would think, lean. You know, I'm going to lean the bike. But roll is an aviation term, but it's a little bit better because when we start talking about rolling uh, up versus leaning up, roll makes more sense. So what we're talking about roll is, if you can imagine the, uh, a hinge axis running between the contact patches, and the motorcycle rolling to one side or leaning to one side. Uh, Nothing else is going on other than roll. So uh, lots of times people complicate the issue by saying, well, counter-steering is what makes the motorcycle turn. And uh, no, that's not quite correct. And so uh, lots of people get confused over counter-steering because they expect it to be something more than it is. So what counter-steering is, is counter-steering controls roll. Uh, now, it'll, it'll overcome gyroscopic precession, it'll overcome gravity, it'll overcome uh, crosswinds. Uh, you know, counter-steering is very powerful because the amount of, of side load that we can put into a tire is dependent upon the weight pressing the tire down into the pavement. 
And uh, so if you've got a 800-pound motorcycle and you've got, you know, say, uh, 400 pounds on the front tire, that means you can apply 400 pounds of side pressure to steer that tire. That's a lot of, that's a lot of poundage. So um, counter-steering is, uh, is very strong, and we can use it to cause the motorcycle to roll. Now, if we're talking about turning, that's really a different issue because once we have the motorcycle rolled over to an angle at which it's going to make about the degree of turn that we want, about the radius of turn, you know, then we have to turn the front wheel towards the curve. So a, a combined effort. So what we're doing is we're, we're coming to the curve, we're putting the bike over a little bit, leaning it over, and then we're steering into the curve? Yes, and, and the reason that we tend to misunderstand this is that um, we have a feeling that we're getting from the grips. In other words, there's a feedback that the machine is giving us from the grips. So let's imagine that we're approaching a curve. We're going to turn to the right. We press on the right grip. We roll the motorcycle over to, let's say, 20 degrees or so. Okay, then we pull on the right grip and we cause the front wheel to turn to the right. Well, do we really have to pull on the grip? Ah, well, that depends on the machine, depends on the geometry. Bear in mind that as the motorcycle rolls over, the, uh, the contact ring on the tire moves over as well. So on the front tire, for instance, the contact ring moves over to the right when you lean to the right. So this causes more drag on the right side of the center line. So this wants to steer the front wheel into the curve. It wants to steer itself into the curve. Now, if the geometry is really, really good, uh, you won't feel, it'll be neutral to you. You don't feel like you have to press or pull or, you know, whatever. You you push it over to an angle and suddenly there you are cornering. Um, but what's really going on is that the front wheel is either steering itself towards the curve or you must steer it towards the curve. And there are various machines out there that don't have very good dynamics. Um, I don't know whether you remember the early Goldwings, you know, and then what was that, 76, something like that. Mm -hmm. They tended to fall into turns. It had a very narrow front tire. And so you, you leaned it over, it wanted to keep leaning over. And it would lean over until it hit the ground until you did something. So what you did is you pulled on the right grip in a right turn. You just, you know, pulled a little bit and that kept it from falling over too far. And so you actually were counter-steering to prevent it from falling over. But you weren't pushing on the grip, you were pulling on the grip. And this was confusing to some people. What do you mean? Your book says I'm supposed to push on the grip to turn right. Well, no, you push on the grip to roll the bike over, you know, and then you do whatever you got to do to make it turn. And basically, you got to point the front wheel in the direction you want to go. Okay, let's look at the mechanics of the the counter steer. So as you're coming up into a corner, I think most people realize, even with a bicycle, that you're not just going to be riding along straight and then turn the wheel like you do on a car to make a corner. Yep, yep. And we're talking bikes here now, uh, sidecar outfits and trikes corner like cars. Okay, so with a bike, a two-wheeler, uh, let's imagine that we're approaching a left turn. Okay, imagine mm -hmm. yourself approaching a left turn, get your hands on the grips there. So what we need to do is we need to get the bike leaned over to the left or rolled to the left. So we press on the left grip. Now, we can press on the left grip. We can pull in the right grip, you know, but what we're actually doing is we're steering the front wheel more to the right. So now the front wheel is going to out-track a little bit. It's going to track to the right of center. So you can imagine if we steer the front wheel to the right, it's going to track off to the right a little bit. What this does is it causes the motorcycle to roll towards the left. 
it's not a matter of gravity as much as it is just that the force on the tire, uh, if, the, if the bottom of the tire goes to the right, the top of the bike goes to the left. It rotates around its center of mass. And so uh, the mechanics is basically that uh, we're going to force the motorcycle to roll by steering the front wheel opposite the way that we intend to, to steer. Now, once the motorcycle gets rolled over to the point where it's where it's either going to start making its own turn or you're going to initiate a little more of a turn, now the front wheel has to be turned back to center and, in fact, a little bit to the left towards the turn. So here we are, leaned over, rolled over to a certain angle that, that we're going to balance gravity against centrifugal force, and, uh, and the bike is going to uh, ride itself around the curve. If... If it leans over too far, we can counter-steer to prevent that. If we want to, at the end of the turn, we need to straighten up again, we can do that by counter-steering as well. We, and there are some other things we can do. We can roll on the throttle and we can apply the brakes and, the, you know, uh, hold your mouth just right. <laughs> but, but basically, counter-steering is the most dominant force because it's depending upon tire traction. Well, they all have similar results, though, don't they? You roll on the throttle, you're pulling the wheels back underneath the, the rider, and you're standing the bike up. Yeah, what, what, uh, what hopefully we do uh, as riders is we get really good at all of this so that we use each tool we have in our toolbox. We use counter-steering for something, we use the throttle for something, and we and hopefully get them all coordinated. So when we're leaned over with the bike going through, we've counter-steered, we've got the bike into a lean or rolled over to one side. Um, I understood it as, as what's making the bike go around the corner is the fact that the uh, outside of the tire is, um, is traveling farther, basically moving slower than the inside of the tire. It's um, much a, akin to a vehicle with the two wheels. When you go around a corner, the outside wheel is spinning faster than the inside wheel. And yeah, that drag... I like this. I liken this to putting a, a foam coffee cup uh, on its side, and if you push it, it will roll in a circle exactly. because of what you described. Uh, and that is one of the characteristics of why a, a motorcycle, two-wheeled vehicle, can, can carve around a corner at pretty much a, a stable lean angle and a stable arc of travel is what you're talking there. Because the tire, even though the tire is round on the bottom, if we look at the profile, when the tire contacts the pavement, it flattens out. And it, and it makes a temporary flat as it rotates. So, uh, so it is not unlike uh, a coffee cup, you know, at the at the point of contact. But we can, of course, um, we can overcome that. Uh, it may be carving a nice, uh, even arc, you know, nice and stable. Uh, we would use the term. It feels like it's on rails. You know, is what we might say about that. Mm -hmm. But if we want to tighten the turn, we can push on the low grip steer the front wheel a little bit more to the outside and it'll and it'll roll over further. If we want to straighten up, we can do that. So uh, all of these things work together, but uh, what I'm saying is that the dominant force really is uh, counter-steering because counter-steering has so much force based on the amount of traction we can get out of the front tire. And without using counter-steering coming into a corner, and I, I think we've, we've all seen people have this problem uh, or seen the results of it, or where someone goes into a corner, they tend to do exactly the opposite of what they should because they realize they're not making the corner. Well, yes, there, there are some people out there who are crash looking for a place to happen because they, they just have not quite figured out that there's some, that there's some skill involved in this. And um, uh, 
the tricky thing about this is that countersteering works whether you know you're doing it or not. I went to a, to a meeting. It was a, a gold wing meeting. I don't remember which association. They wanted me to talk about countersteering. And at the end of the meeting, there was this woman who had uh, – she had ridden her gold wing to the meeting. And she said, well, she had heard about countersteering, but she just was not sure she ever wanted to try it. And, of course <laughs> – the only way she got to the meeting was she was countersteering. Of course. Otherwise, she never would have got there. So so if you imagine, for instance, that you're going to steer the front end to the right, uh, that doesn't mean the motorcycle is going to turn right. What it means is that you're going to cause the motorcycle to roll to the left. And if that's not what you're expecting, then this can be a shock. And um, I had a conversation with Keith Code, the, the track school guru, many years ago, and he pointed out that uh, that there are many riders who end up strong-arming a grip and they don't understand it. So they're trying to, they're trying to make a nice turn to the left, you know, and so they, they press on the left grip to get the bike rolled over, and their brain says, oh, my God, don't do that. So their right arm is strong-arming the throttle side, mm. you know. And, and fighting themselves and they, into the corner. They're fighting themselves. They're trying to bend the handlebars. You know, the, the left hand is doing one thing and the right hand is doing something else, and their brain doesn't comprehend what they're doing. And so this is this is why people, um, you know, might come up with a, a theory uh, uh, like Lee Parks and say, well, let's uh, let's steer with one hand. So when you go into a left turn, steer with the left and relax your right. Uh, my put would be. Figure out what you're doing and uh, and do it correctly. So you might imagine if you're going to to lean the bike to the left or roll to the left is uh, push both grips to the left. Well, that gets me in trouble too because somebody says, "What do you mean push?" You know, I pull on the right grip and push on the left grip. Okay, okay, uh, press the grip, uh, move the grip. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we 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 struggle with with the terms to try and describe what we're actually doing and. Uh, but some people will say that, um, you know, if it's something we're doing automatically, you mentioned the woman that came to the meeting, she's been riding mm -hmm. her gold wing, clearly using counter-steering methods without realizing it. And some people will say, well, why do we need to talk about it then? Why do we need to understand it if we're already doing it automatically? If it's part of our riding technique, maybe naturally, maybe it's an inherent thing, why do we need to learn more about it? Excellent question. And the reason for that is that um, we don't always have the normal situation. So let's say that our woman who has been who has been countersteering by, by what, muscle memory, something, you know, that, that she's actually been doing it without realizing what she's doing or comprehending what she's doing. And so she rides up to Hurricane Ridge and she, she goes through a tunnel. And when she gets out the other side of the tunnel, here's this really, really strong wind is howling down the side of the cliff and it knocks the motorcycle over to the left. And what, what she might be thinking is, oh my gosh, uh, I need to lean to the right. And so the input that she would put in there would be leaning to the right, assuming that she was in a nice, calm situation on a level road. And so if, if a non-normal situation comes up, we can't use our normal uh, habits to correct for it. So I think uh, what we do is we practice for the non-normal situations that come up. That's okay. That's an aircraft term, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, that, so that we don't get in trouble when something happens that is unfamiliar to us. Non-normal. I like that. Uh, but but this is also what the reference I made about making a corner because someone will go into a corner and if they don't understand that they're countersteering for the corner, they start to panic because they can't make the corner and then they try and steer through the corner. And of course that gets them into trouble. 
Well, again, uh, let's let's imagine the guy. He's going into a nice right-hand sweeper, and the bike is starting to go wide. Okay, the, the bike is starting to drift over towards the center line. We got the same image here. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so he says, "My God, I'm not making the turn." So he grabs the grips, and he pulls on the right grip to turn the front wheel towards the direction he wants to go. What will the bike do? It's going to veer left. It's going to straighten up and go left. Yeah across the road, into the ditch, et cetera. So there are a lot of crashes that occur because people uh, don't practice enough the right kind of skills and don't get this ingrained into their brain enough that they really understand what they are doing. It, it's very interesting that people manage to wobble around on motorcycles and uh, not crash any more frequently than they do, even though it's extremely dangerous. But um, I guess motorcycles are more forgiving than we, than we have any right to uh, hope for. And I think the thing with counter-steering, as soon as you start to talk about it, it it's counterintuitive, um, and it throws people off, and then you'll get people say, well, I don't want to think about it, because when I start to think about it, I get confused. So if there was an exercise you could give right now for people to go and try on their bike, what would that be? Just uh, go find yourself an open parking lot somewhere where there are, there are no cars that you can hit or power poles you can hit or no guards running towards you, waving their arms, that sort of thing. And... Um, Put the motorcycle in a, in a straight line and uh, 30 miles an hour or so, third gear, fourth gear, and just press on the left grip and see what happens. And then press on the right grip and see what happens. And you can appreciate that as you steer the front wheel uh, in one direction, the bike wants to lean in the other direction. And it will, of course, turn in that direction based on what we've talked about. For instance, uh, you know, front wheel, front tire drag on one side, that sort of thing. So... Uh, you can do an experiment just going down the road. Just push on the grips and see what happens. I had a guy in a in a class years ago. Um, he this was in swim and they had an experienced rider course, which I was uh, I was one of the instructors. And this fellow had arrived uh, riding a KLX, as I recall. And uh, we got to the counter steering point. He said, "Wait a minute, wait, that doesn't make sense in the class." You know. And so I tried to explain it again. He says, "That's wrong. That's wrong. That can't be. That can't be true." You know. Well, he had gotten there somehow, you know. <laughs> and so we went out to the range, and, uh, and so he was having trouble with swerving and cornering. He just couldn't make the motorcycle go where he wanted it to go. Um, and so I said, what I told you just a little bit ago is put the bike in a straight line, push on the grips, and see what happens. He came down that line with both hands braced so hard against the grips that nothing could move, you know. And he couldn't bring himself to push on the grip and see what would happen. Well, the next day I saw him riding up Hurricane Ridge, <laughs> a twisty mountain road. You know, so um, somewhere other people, some people are able to get around. But I, I would put my money more on being able to reduce the danger by knowing what you're doing and practicing what you're doing and and gaining the kind of skills. Essentially, the way that you gain a skill is you just practice it about fifty thousand times and you do it right, and your brain learns to put this into what we call muscle memory. So then we just do it without having to think about it. But up to that point, you may have to think about it. I think with counter-steering too, some people are not really fully understanding what's happening when they are counter-steering. You're saying this fellow here who, who couldn't bring himself to actually push on the, on the one handlebar. And I think that sometimes they confuse weight shift with um, counter-steering. Absolutely correct. Uh, there are lots of people who think that the way that they cause the motorcycle to lean or roll is to shift their butt in the saddle. 
not really, or there are some people that say, well, I, I push down on one foot peg, or I put my knee against the tank and push. Uh, well, if you want to talk physics here, uh, we have the opposite and equal reaction. So if you push your knee against the tank, what is it you're pushing against? You're and pushing so what against happens yourself, is aren't you? you're pushing against, well, yeah, you're pushing against, you're pushing the tank over, uh, but you're pushing your body in the opposite direction. And the result is the, the motorcycle doesn't do anything other than roll, and now you're hanging off one side, and it's still going in the same line. So uh, uh, there are people who have tried various ex experiments to try and figure this out. And uh, one of them, there was a racetrack, and some guys have got into this discussion about counter-steering and, you know, did you have to counter-steer to turn? And so this one guy said, well, he was going to practice uh, intentionally holding the bars straight and just using body uh, steering to lean the bike over. So he came down to the end of the straight and tried this and just about ran off the track. He, he frantically grabbed at the bars and, and rolled the bike over and was scared himself to death and was absolutely amazed that, that what he'd been doing for years and years was not what he thought he'd been doing. What he'd been doing is counter-steering and not really realizing that. Well, some of the other things that can throw you off, too, is if you ride a dual sport bike, for instance, and you stand up mm -hmm. while you're off-road, uh, you are weighting your foot pegs. As a matter of fact, it's a big part of steering when you're off-road. You, you weight your foot pegs, the bike leans over. Um, you're also using the bars as well, but that is part of your, your steering technique. You're not counter-steering on the trail. Well, I think you, you do counter-steer. Um, there are various theories around about, well, counter-steering doesn't work on gravel or counter-steering doesn't work below... 14.2 miles an hour or whatever. Um, Counter-steering is just steering. And so the way we call it counter-steering, the reason we call it counter-steering, is simply that if you steer the front wheel to the left, the motorcycle tends to roll to the right because it's counter to the direction that you think you want to go. But there are a lot of other forces involved, and obviously on gravel we have much less traction. Uh, at slow speeds, uh, the front tire doesn't outtrack rapidly enough to give us, uh, you know, the roll that we need. So we have to depend on things like throttle and, and uh, you know, standing on the pegs. So if you're going down the trail uh, on gravel and you, uh, and you roll the motorcycle to the left under you, so you're, you're standing up on the pegs and you're leaning the bike over to the left, let us say, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to turn. You know, but if you ease on a little throttle, yeah, it'll probably turn because you're going to slide the rear end out to the right. So we use we use things other than tactics, other than counter steering when we're in other situations at other speeds, um, you know, and all these things have to fit. Is counter steering a lot, especially on pavement, um, affected by friction? In other words, what I'm getting at is if you have less friction, would it be less uh, applicable? Well, it's not so much that there's that there's less friction. Um, as it is, the uh, we have to think of the mass. So um, if you have a pencil or a pen in front of you, hold this up vertically and pretend like this is a motorcycle. Um, and let's say we put the eraser side down. Well, if we move the eraser to the left, the pencil will lean to the right or roll to the right. Um, and this is because our finger is powerful enough to move it. If you just blew on it, it probably wouldn't move very far. And the fact that we have weight on a rubber tire means that it has a lot of traction. That's why we, why countersteering is, is less effective on gravel is we just don't have as much traction. We have some traction. 
we just have less traction. You were uh, mentioning the tire size of the old gold wings. You were saying that it affects how it steers. How does tire size affect the uh, the cornering? Well, of course, um, a, a manufacturer who has good engineers will understand these things and will design the right size tires and the right diameters and the right wheelbase and brake and trail and all these things so that the motorcycle will corner very nicely. So uh, that since that's the most fun thing about motorcycling is to lean into corners and go through corners, we want it to be very stable going around. We want it to go around the corner on rails, as we would say. So uh, geometry of the, of the machine is important to this. So if you can imagine a a very narrow tire, a very narrow front tire, let's say a 325-19. So it's not very wide, which means that as we roll that tire over, we we lean the motorcycle to the right, the contact patch doesn't move very far off center. And that might seem to be a good thing. But on the other hand, if the the contact ring doesn't move over further, uh, we don't have enough drag on the tire to steer the front wheel in the direction that we want the bike to turn. So uh, the width of the tire, uh, you know, all fits into the steering geometry of the machine. So as it turns out, the old narrow tires, or I don't know whether you remember Dunlop had a trigonic tire that actually had sort of a, uh, a V-shaped cross-section so that you're riding on a point regardless of the, uh, of the angle until you got way over, and then suddenly you had a broad, you had a broad flat uh, area on the tire. But um, it's... It's not just a matter of narrow or wide, but as it turns out, today's geometry is much better than yesterday's geometry. And so you'll see the motorcycles, uh, you know, uh, the typical machines today have comparatively wide oval tires front and rear. I had a little experiment. I, I have a, um, a KLX 250, and uh, since I'm an old geezer with short legs, I decided to drop this as much as I could, so I put in the Kuba links. And, and uh, then I decided I was going to go for different size wheels. And so I found kits to build 17-inch wheels. So the original was, what was it? It was uh, uh, 18 on the rear and 21 on the front, I think, something like that. And I dropped them both down to 17 and 17. But the rims I got were very wide rims. They were three and a half inch wide rims, believe it or not. Looked at the rims in the kit and I thought, this isn't going to fit between the forks, you know. So I laced them up, mounted the tires, and the tires I got were relatively wide oval tires. So now I've changed the tires, I've changed the wheel size, and I thought, I wonder how this is going to affect, uh, you know, steering, handling. Mm-hmm. Well, it turned out just very nicely because the extra width in the tire made up for the um, for the smaller diameter. But you took all that engineering and you threw it out the window. <laughs> Well, not quite. I, I'm, I'm not quite that dumb. So what I did is I looked at a different um, Kawasaki model that had super motard wheels on it in the 17, 17 sizes. Mm-hmm. And I checked part numbers on the on the forks and the frame, <laughs> you know. And it turns out it looked pretty much to me like the same machine with different wheels. So I had a pretty good idea that they had tried this and it had worked. But uh, when you do it yourself for the first time, it's always... Uh, uh, you know, a question. I haven't ridden a bike like that, but a lot of people who say when they ride it, it's like the funnest thing they've ever ridden. Well, yeah, small machines are fun. I I was out, uh, I used to have a, a Suzuki uh, 350. Uh, what was that? DR something, 350. And uh, I was out riding around the peninsula, taking some photos of various hazards on the roads. And 
And uh, three guys on cruisers came by, you know, putt, 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 putt down the road. And so I put my camera back and fired up the bike, and it wasn't very long before I caught up with them, you know. And I thought, well, it's kind of impolite to pass people because I know I'm going to pull over and take another photo, you know. So I hung back a little bit. Well, we got to a twisty section. I said, I thought, screw this, I'm, I'm passing. So I passed them on the inside, and uh, I startled them. They had, they had no idea that somebody on a little piddler bike could go roaring by their 1700, 1800, whatever they were, massive, you know, cruisers. Um, well, guess what? You know, you've got to force all of that mass to get around the turn. And so there are people who love riding little bikes. And uh, if if anybody out there who is listening to this has not ridden a smaller machine lately, do yourself a favor and just go ride one. And see if that doesn't put the smile back on your face. David, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to discuss it, and I hope I haven't confused people more than I have helped. Um, I think that uh, uh, it is important for us to try and comprehend what's going on with the machine so that we can better control it. It's it's just fine to get better at what we're doing. And uh, invite me back some other time, we'll talk about some of these other issues. Thanks for the invite, and it's been a nice talking with you. And that was David Huff, a motorcyclist, a motorcycle trainer, author, writer from uh, Washington in the United States. If you haven't come across David's books, you really got to go to Amazon uh, or wherever you're going to buy your book and have a look. Proficient Motorcycling, The Ultimate Guide to Riding Well. I would start with that one. Great book. It's got, uh, I think on Amazon US, it's got 392 reviews on it. And it's, um, it looks like it's almost a five star, like just a, a shade under. So I know the book. I have the book myself. And really, really good read. And uh, I think it's important for us as riders, you know, to have something like that as a reference. Go back, read it, and read it again. Now, hey, if you want to get a hold of David, if you have some questions about what he just said on this show, and we're going to have him back again. But if you have questions, you want to get a hold of him, he's given us permission to give out his email address. So it's bentspoke93 at gmail.com. And you can get a hold of him there. And that link, of course, will be in the show notes. Well, it seems that the folks at Giant Loop are always up to something, and right now that includes winning the 2016 Nifty 50 Best New Product Award for their Gas Bag Fuel Safe Bladder. And that's, um, it's basically a fabric bag that you put fuel in and carry it on your bike. Now, technically, it's only supposed to be for closed track and um, racing use, I, I guess. But in any case, it's a great device. I mean, you've heard of people filling up um, just a, a regular two-liter pop bottle before and crushing it down. Well, this is a way nicer setup than that. But that this is a testament to Giant Loop's manufacturing, uh, winning that award. And they've also, for instance, they've um, they've updated their Coyote Saddlebag. And the, the Coyote Saddlebag was really the one that launched Giant Loop back in 2008. 100% waterproof, and it's the choice for real hardcore off-road expeditions. You can carry all your gear for multi-day trips, and you can still work the entire saddle. I mean, this thing is really, really well-designed and well-respected. I've read you the, the quote from Cycle World magazine that says it's the best that they've found for that style saddlebag bag. Um, they've got a great video on their website where Harold talks about the Coyote saddlebag. So check it out, giantloopmoto.com. And of course, anytime you're dealing with Giant Loop, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Mm-hmm. 
Coming up next, we're going to demystify the charging system on your motorcycle. A lot to learn on this episode, a lot of technical stuff. But this is really good because a, a cheap multimeter, which I think you can get them for like under $10, like really inexpensively, will set you up with a little bit of knowledge here. So pay attention, maybe grab a notebook and get ready to learn. But first, I want to let you know, Aerostitch has their brand new catalog out. Biggest ever, 292 pages of fun. I'm a big fan of Aerostitch catalog because it has all the goodies. I mean, face it, no matter what you ride, no matter what kind of rider you are, they've got stuff in their catalog for you. And it's just great to look through. So make sure you drop by their website and, and grab the catalog. Oh, their website, www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. You know why you put the forward slash ARR in. It's because it's going to let them know you came from Adventure Rider Radio. It's also going to get you 10% off on your first order or free shipping if you're an existing customer. So great deal there. By the way, to make room for over 200 new products in this catalog, they've got uh, 20% off or more on all kinds of discontinued items. So that's a little tip for you. Now, women riders um, are covered as well with Aerostitch because Aerostitch has a, a line of women's clothing, which is cut to fit women properly. And they also have a bunch of custom alterations that you can order right from the factory while you're ordering your suit. So you'll want to drop by and have a look at that. I got to tell you, I'm riding with one of Aerostitch's suits right now, and I absolutely love it. Really, really nice. For repairs, if you're into doing your own repairs, Aerostitch has a great selection of books and manuals, all kinds of motorcycle stuff. Again, you'll find it in their catalog, including, get this, a book on motorcycle electrical systems troubleshooting and repair. That goes right along with this episode. So uh, drop by their website, www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. And of course, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Our electrical systems on our motorcycles tend to go sort of a, an unsung hero of the bike. I think they do so much, and we don't really care about them. We don't pay them any attention until something goes wrong. You start your bike, and you run it every day, and the computers and all the other electricals on it work just fine. But the moment they break down, they become this huge mystery. You look at these black boxes or gray boxes and massive wire looms going everywhere, and you're thinking, what the heck could be going wrong right now? Well, today we're hopefully going to try and lift some of the cloud from that mystery, at least when it comes to charging systems because charging systems are something we end up dealing with, especially as you add accessories to your motorcycle. You may find that somewhere down the road, you run into an electrical system problem, or maybe you haven't done anything to it and the bike's getting old. Hopefully today's episode or this segment is going to lift some of that cloud when you look at the wires and boxes and think, what is going on? We're going to talk about the stator that charges your battery. We're going to talk about the battery itself. We're going to talk about the rectifier and how to check the rectifier and the stator yourself. You can do it yourself. All you need is a multimeter and you can get those dirt cheap just about anywhere. So grab yourself a multimeter and tackle this yourself. And the nice thing about this is you don't have to wait till your bike breaks down to check this out to use this system. So if you have a multimeter, grab it and sit with it while we go through this. Otherwise, just make some notes and keep this episode marked so you can go back to it and listen to it again. We also have some tips for you on ways to sort of patch things along and get you somewhere if you've broken down in the middle of nowhere. We have Max Stratton coming on to do this, who is a certified master mechanic for BMW motorcycles. And Max and I are going to talk through this electrical cloud. Max, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Jim, thank you. So today we're going to talk about charging systems, a real scary thing, really, because it's one of those mystery things you're riding along and maybe maybe you get an indicator light or, or worse, you go to start your bike and the battery's dead. Um, maybe what we should do is just start off with an overall explanation of, of what we're looking at. What is the electrical system on the bike? 
Well, the electrical system is uh, something you don't think about until it basically doesn't work for you anymore. Um, but that's what um, helps generate power to start the vehicle. And um, the charging system on the motorcycle is what maintains the power uh, while you're riding, uh, powering all your accessories, uh, heated gear, windshield, and um, putting the uh, uh, electricity back into the battery um, so uh, that the battery is ready for you for the next time you, you need to, to draw on it. All right, so the battery is just there to start it. When the bike's running, um, we're not drawing power theoretically from the battery. Um, no, it, the, the charging system is what is uh, keeping the bike alive at that point. That's why uh, a lot of times uh, if a battery is uh, dead, um, you can jump start the vehicle and the bike will run and run great, and then you shut it off again, you need to get another jump start uh, because at that point you were working off the uh, charging system of the vehicle. Okay, well, maybe that's a good spot to start. Let's just start with jumping it. So you've got to, let's just say you you went to start your bike, the bike won't start, the battery's dead. Um, What do we do to jump it? Find a friend (laughs) or find someone with jumper cables and uh, find a car. um, So you can jump it to a car, no problem, or another motorcycle? Yes, you can jump to another motorcycle or car. You have to be very, very careful. Um, it's uh, very, very important that you uh, usually use two people, one person, a man, each end of the jumper cables. And with motorcycles, it's very, very difficult because often you're uh, in a, uh, I don't know, a, a breakdown situation. So you, you, you don't have your shop tools and you're using whatever you can find to get yourself going. And a lot of times the automotive jumper cables are, are too big to fit into the tight spot of the uh, battery area. Um, so it's usually great to have two people and uh, very, very carefully uh, get the leads on to the battery without making contact with uh, the chassis or anything else. And it's really important at this point, too, to make sure you're both on the, on the same page, right? Because often people will pop the hood and say, oh, yeah, I can give you a hand, but you want to make sure that you both know red's positive, black's negative. Sounds basic, but it's really important. Yeah, you gotta you got to go slow because uh, very, very often you're rushing because you feel bad because you've stopped someone. It's just a – I know it sounds kind of crazy, but it's a mindset. and Everyone's moving quickly, and everyone's uh, being really friendly and helpful, and uh, that's where a mistake could happen where uh, someone could get things crossed up. And sometimes on a car or the, the other vehicle that you're using, whether it be a tractor, a car, or a truck, or, or something, sometimes it's very hard to see which one's positive and which one's negative. Um, a lot of cars, you can't even see the battery anymore, and you're working off of posts in the engine that have a positive lead, and then you have to ground it on the engine or something. And almost all modern vehicles are negative ground, I mean, like unless you're dealing with an old tractor, and then you want to be really careful you're not with a 6-volt battery or something. But, but vehicles today have a negative ground. Yeah, it's pretty hard to find those, uh, but yes, negative ground. Right. So you can boost it. Let's say you boost it now and it doesn't want to keep running. Um, Then you have a charging system problem. That means that your battery uh, got drained down uh, because the battery power took over because the charging system wasn't keeping it up. And uh, at that point, your battery got drawn down, causing the bike to stop. And uh, then you need to diagnose your charging system. Right. So, okay. Now, dead battery. Um, I guess we're going to have to charge this battery. Really, we need the bike running to check the electrical system, do we not? You do. Yep. The first thing you always do is check the battery when the bike is off and see what the standing voltage is. You should be somewhere in the 12.5 to 12.8 volt range. And uh, if you're not, you need to charge the battery. 
And if there's any question about that battery, it's always smart to load test it and use a battery load tester to test all the cells uh, to make sure it can handle it. And then next, start the motorcycle and see what the standing uh, charging rate is at idle and then at a higher RPM. And you want to see somewhere between the 13.5 and 14-volt range. When it's when you're revving it up? Um, older bikes, yes. Uh, vintage motorcycles often charge very little or not at all at idle. So you may need to, uh, on that bike, bring it up to about you know 3,000 RPM to see the uh, charging system activate and work. Um, uh, most modern motorcycles will charge immediately at, at idle. And it's very distinct, isn't it? When you, when you rev it up, like you're going to see the voltage jump up. It's not just going to go up to 12.9. Yep. So now we're working with a multimeter um, to check all this. And you'll, you'll clearly see, um, whether it's an analog or digital, you'll clearly see the needle move or the uh, numbers increase uh, uh, instantly right up. So if, if it doesn't go up, if it shows that it's not charging, so it's just staying at the battery voltage, you know, 12.4 or 12.5 or whatever you've started it at, then is there any sort of instrument that you can just clip onto the battery and tell you it'll tell you exactly what's wrong in the electrical system? Um, unfortunately, no. Right. So <laughs> at this point, you got to start hunting. Yes. So um, it's always good in your home toolbox or if you're traveling to have a multimeter. It's just uh, one of those things that um, uh, you, you can't see the electricity, so you need this tool to, to, to search and find it, and it's uh, the safest way to test things. So usually what I would do is, you know, begin working backwards from the battery and uh, uh, go and check the rectifier uh, on the motorcycle and inspect that. Okay, so where do we find the rectifier? Oh, it could be <laughs> anywhere. <laughs> well, a lot of times it's bolted to the frame, isn't it? Yeah, it's often, it's very often it's on the frame. Uh, typically, it'll have fins on it, and uh, the way you can identify it will be uh, usually... Uh, I'm going to generalize uh, two plugs on it, uh, one with three pins and the other one with two pins on it. And it would just be kind of random sitting there bolted to the frame or somewhere um, usually close to the battery, um, not right next to it, but sometimes in that general area. And uh, you want to begin inspecting that. Okay, and obviously we're talking about doing something that you're really going to need to know something about electricity before you get into this. It's not something you're going to learn standing on the side of the road, you know, when it's dark and you've got your headlamp on, it's it's pouring rain. So we'll talk about, in a little bit, we'll talk about ideas, uh, maybe some quick fixes or something that you can do to, to patch yourself up to get home. But maybe we should just look at the, the whole electrical system to begin with. So overall, what are the components involved here? Well, the components in the electrical system on the bike would be the battery, uh, would be the rectifier, and then the stator. Okay, and, and sir, I should, I should uh, clarify that when I say this, we're talking about charging system. We're not talking about the whole electrical system. Correct, yes, yep. So we, we, we've got a, a stator, a rectifier, the battery. We already talked about the battery. The battery is, is fairly straightforward um, as far as, uh, I, I guess, if, it, if it's going to start your bike, you know it's good. If we just look at that, there are indications that a battery's going. Yeah, if the battery is... is it's weak to start in the morning and then, you know, works okay during the day or is uh, weak at different points when you go to hot start the bike and things like that, that could indicate the battery is on its way out. Um, Sometimes uh, batteries just do weird things. If there's a plate that's bad or something, you could get intermittent problems and usually at that point it's best to, to change out the battery. And they don't last a real long time, do they? No, they don't. Um, uh, some batteries are uh, better than others, uh, but they, um, 
a lot of times they just find victim uh, to poor maintenance. Uh, we always want to put the bike on a battery tender every time we're not using it. And uh, time goes by and we forget to do it. And uh, the battery will uh, discharge while it sits, um, which is bad for the battery. So it's always smart to um, keep your bike on a tender of some sort. Um, and that will help uh, increase your battery life over time. So how long are you saying, like, if you're going to leave it sit for a certain period of time, what's the period of time you'd recommend it being put on a tender? Um, you know, if you're going to be more than, you know, a week, it's good to keep it on a tender. Wow. Um, some people are, are very regimented, and they'll, they'll just plug it in every time they, they park the bike, and uh, their batteries will probably last, you know, a, a year or a year and a half or two years longer than, you know, someone that doesn't do that. But you, you don't need to if you're riding it every day. No, if you're riding it every day, um, then the, the charging system will maintain the battery uh, for you. Okay, so, so we've got the components broken down. What does each one do? Well, the stator spins by power, uh, being powered by the uh, motorcycle's engine, and that creates uh, AC voltage from the spinning action uh, through the windings. Um, then that AC voltage goes into the uh, rectifier, and the rectifier converts that uh, to DC voltage and then sends the uh, charged power to the battery. So is the rectifier mainly built in with the stator? Um, no, it's separate. The rectifier would be built in if the vehicle had an alternator. The alternator is uh, another type of charging system used on some motorcycles um, and cars um, that were the stator rectifier um, are all uh, contained into one unit. Okay, so is the rectifier, is, is that what we're testing, the thing we're talking about being bolted to the bike? Yes, that's the piece that's bolted to the bike. That uh, That's one of the pieces you can test, yes. And that's also the regulator as well? Uh, the regulator is built in to the rectifier. Okay. Uh, there's some vintage motorcycles where the regulator would be uh, a, a separate component. And what does the regulator do? Try to define it without using the word, but basically uh, stabilize the power uh, going to the battery. Okay. So it uh, gives the battery more power if it needs it and cuts it back if it's charged up. Correct. Okay. So how do we go about testing it? So we know we have some sort of charging system problem. The bike won't continue to run when the battery's flat, or maybe we've, we've uh, put our multimeter on. I guess especially we put our multimeter on, we've revved it up, we find that the voltage is not going up. Where do we turn? Well, uh, you turn to your multimeter, and if you are, have the luxury of having an owner's manual for your motorcycle uh, so you can see the specific stuff, but in general, what you do is you use your multimeter in the diode mode, and you would take one lead onto the two-pin plug for the rectifier and test that against each one of the three-prong leads. And what you're looking for is open one way and close the other. So when your multimeter is in the diode testing mode, it's sending a small amount of voltage through so you want to see the voltage pass through one way but not the other so from the double lead you test one to the three and then you switch and go from the other lead on the two prong uh, plug to the other three and what you're looking for is to only see the power flow through one direction if it flows both ways or if it's completely open that means the diode is bad if it's flowing both ways Okay, and then that could tell you that it's the rectifier that needs to be replaced. Yep, the rectifier, yeah, at that point would be replaced. Okay, just to make sure we fully understand this, we're going to run through this one more time. But before we do, I just want to talk about open and closed circuit, the difference between the two. An open circuit does not 
conduct electricity, a closed circuit does. So if you take your multimeter and you put it on diode and you take your probes and put them together, the multimeter should beep at that point, or at least show a conductive circuit, a complete circuit, a closed circuit. If it doesn't, the circuit is open. So with that in mind, let's run through this one more time, Max. So when testing the rectifier, you're going to um, compare the two-pin plug against the three-pin plug. And what the first thing you do is you take your multimeter, turn it on, and set it to the diode testing setting. You'll take your red lead, and you'll put it to one of the two-pin plug pins. Then you'll take your black lead, and you'll test each one of the three-pin plug pins. And you'll, you'll see voltage passing through or not. <laughs> it could go one way or the other. So you're testing the flow of electricity through the diodes, and a diode only flows electricity one way. If it flows electricity both ways, that means the diode is bad. And when you do this test from the two-pin plug to the three-pin plug, it should all be the same between each one of the three pins. Then you'll move your red lead to the other pin of the two-pin plug, and you'll test it, and all those three tests should be the same. They may be open and they may be closed. Okay, and, and they would be opposite, wouldn't they? Because they, the one they, they would be opposite the first test that you right. did. Right. So you you've got your two pin plug, which is basically sending ba- uh, voltage to your battery. You've got your three pin plug, which is coming from your stator. On those two plugs, on the rectifier itself, you're going to take one of the two pins and you're going to test it against all three of the other pins. They should all be the same, either completely open or completely closed. Right. So and then when you switch to the other pin, the same thing. They all three should test completely open or completely closed, and it should be opposite of the first one. Perfect. Yes. Yes. Okay. Opposite is the key. Right. And and the thing is, you're not going to... Would you find it where you test all of them? Yeah, you could, actually. Yeah, you could. They could all be closed in the first pin, and then they could all be closed in the second pin. So, yes, it's important that they're opposite. Yes. Right. That's why, if you're having fun with your motorcycle and learning about your bike, if you test it, know how it tests when it's good, then you'll have the, that knowledge. Right. And, and you're not going to hurt anything by testing it. Uh, no. Okay. And how about the stator? The stator... Uh, what you do with the stator is you need to find that plug. Uh, be on the side of the motorcycle, you'll see a large uh, loom coming out, and it'll have a three-pronged plug on it, which plugs into the rectifier. It's one way to, to find it. And you test each one of those wires uh, in the ohms position of the multimeter. You test each one of those against each other. So you'll put one pin in one, and then you'll test the other two, then you'll move it to the middle, and then we'll test the other two, and, and so forth. And all those should read um, 0 to 0.1 on the ohm meter. And what will they read if something's wrong? If something's wrong, it would read open, showing that the winding is uh, broken. And that means one of the wires that helps create the electricity from the spinning motion um, is broken inside the uh, stator. What are the three wires coming out? What are the three wires yeah, coming like, out? Like, are they different yeah. voltages? No, they're the, um, that's where the AC voltage comes out. They're the three wires of the, the winding is made up of three wires. So each one of those is the end of the winding. And if it was running, each one of those would be producing the same voltage? Uh, yes. But in AC? In AC. Okay, so that might be a little too much for some people, um, and, and others they'll be able to grapple with, with this and figure yeah. it out. But how about some tricks now if you find yourself stuck? 
if you find yourself stuck, um, you can charge your battery. There's so many auto parts stores and, and uh, gas stations uh, around. The mall-type auto parts stores, the AutoZone, the Pep Boys, the, all those have a great resource of uh, stuff in them and tools that they rent and let you borrow and, and in the parking lot and things like that. So you could, if your charging system is bad, you could charge your battery up for a while and hang out and let it get charged so you can get your bike home or, or get to a repair shop to get the parts you need to fix. Um, if your battery is bad and your charging system is good, many of these auto parts stores will have a lawnmower type battery or something that you could fit in there to get yourself home. It may not be the ideal choice or something that you're going to leave on the bike long term, but often it's cheaper than uh, having your bike towed. And so you, when you're saying charge it up, so you charge it up and basically you're, you're riding off the battery then you're, that's how you're, you're getting home. Correct. Yep. Should you be trying to disconnect anything? And cause most bikes have their headlights come on. Yeah, good point. Uh, you should shut everything off at that point. If your charging system's bad and you're charging your battery and you're just powering the bike on the battery only, um, everything should be off. The auxiliary lights, the heated grips, the heated seats, any type of entertainment systems and GPS should all be shut off. Headlight um, depends on the state law. You may need to leave that on for safety. And you may want to either. I mean, that's, yeah. a, that's a personal call, I guess. Well, yeah. How do you know when your battery is, like, how do you know if you're going to make it? How do you know the battery, if the battery is going dead? Um, the bike will begin to lose power. Um, you, your headlight may go out <laughs> by itself um, and begin to get dim. And uh, the electronics of the motorcycle that power the engine will begin to um, not see correct voltages. And the bike will begin to run funny and have drivability issues. And at that point, you're nearing the end, so uh, you should be looking for a spot, you know, a, a safe place to pull over and stop. I was just thinking when we were talking about jumping the, the bike and think of the different ways to jump it. I mean, one is, uh, is to push it and dump the clutch and get the engine to turn over. Yeah, that's one way. It's kind of hard uh, with a lot of the electronics on the motorcycle. If the battery is completely dead, the electronic control unit of the motorcycle needs to see a standing voltage to start and your bike won't produce that by roll starting it often and some of the sizes the size of some of the big touring bikes today sometimes that can end up being kind of a mess um, trying to push and mm. jump on your bike and go dirt bikes you have a better shot right does the stator produce electricity if you just spin it like that like if you, if you push start the bike it will begin to produce electricity once you let the clutch out and the engine begins to turn, and you, you hope that that's enough to uh, get it going. But, um, again, because of the electronic control unit's demand for electricity, usually it needs a battery, uh, so jumping's the, the better alternative. You're just going to end up flooding it and making problems worse. Yeah, and you end up getting tired. And, you, know, you find yourself at the bottom of the hill, and all your stuff's at the top of the hill. <laughs> exactly. <you> walk back <laughs> up. <laughs> so. Uh, well, I was thinking about pre-planning now. So in other words, yeah. you want to plan to be prepared for, you know, a, a problem or something. I guess as simple as a plug, like even just a direct wire to a plug, because we talk about jumping it and the difficulty of getting the battery terminals on the, the battery for the motorcycle. If you planned in advance and had a, um, a jumper plug put on, that could be a huge asset, even if you had to help somebody else. That's a huge asset. Uh, a series of BMWs through the late 90s and early 2000 model years had the batteries in the worst place. They're always under the fuel tank. And it wasn't until later on uh, in 2004 that they actually put a factory jump plug in so that you could get to the uh, battery without taking the bike apart. Because at that point, 
some bikes you had to take the fuel tank off to get to the battery and at that point you can't jump start it because your fuel tank's off mm. so you kind of get yourself stuck in a jam and the only thing you can do is try to charge the battery uh, so a jump plug uh, is important to have and even they make jump packs today that are about the same size as uh, some of the larger iPhones and that's always a great thing to have in your motorcycle um, it's something that we often take when we're on a dual sport ride or taking a large group of people out uh, we often find that we you know people uh, batteries die they leave their key on while they're doing something on their bike and they forget and it's so fast and easy just to walk over and, and jump start with one of these small little jump packs it's pretty amazing too. That's a lot of power in those little things. And we were talking, like you said, iPhone size things that can that can jump a vehicle. It's incredible. Yeah, they weigh nothing. It's something that you won't notice in your tank bag until you, you need it and you'll be happy you had it. Um, they can jumpstart diesel trucks. It's it's amazing uh, what they can do. And if you have one of those, that's something you can help power your bike to get it home if your charging system fails. Um, oh right, that's try, a good point. Try to run off of something like that. But one word of advice I tell a lot of people is planning ahead and getting to know your motorcycle while it works is always a real smart thing because often you, if you're you know not a full-time mechanic by trade, you're always second-guessing what you're checking on the motorcycle. So if you kind of got to know your motorcycle when everything is up and functioning, know where these parts are on the motorcycle, know where power is coming in or going out, um, uh, and knowing what the uh, battery voltage is on your bike when it is charging, when you know it's good, and then that way you have a baseline of when you do sense that there's a problem and you're able to pinpoint it quicker. The other thing I was going to ask you about, just to, to wrap it up, is overloading the system. Sometimes, especially depending on what bike you have, you have an older KLR or something that doesn't put out a lot of power for, um, from the stator. You put on a set of lights, maybe a set of heated grips and a jacket, and then you find you have charging issues. Yeah, um, best thing to do is to, as you're adding those things, have your multimeter ready, do this in your garage, rather than getting two hours from home and then realize that your charging system couldn't keep up and your battery's dead. Um, You'd want to put everything on at full power, make sure your gloves are on, your jacket liner's on, your pant liner is on, Um, if you're charging your phone, if you have your heated grips on, if your GPS is, have that stuff all turned on in the comfort of your driveway and, uh, and and check it then because you will always find out it's broken in the rain hours from home <laughs> at night. That's true. <laughs> and, and it's only the, the last component that's, that pushes it over the edge, right? Somebody will say, well, my heated jacket and grips always work before and all I did was flip on my, my little LED lights and, and next thing yep. you know, it died. And Exactly, yep. And even if you're riding and all that stuff checked out in your garage, and uh, you've been using this stuff for years, and you're just riding along, and all of a sudden you get a weird hiccup from the motorcycle, and it just doesn't really make sense why it happened. That could be a sign that your charging system is beginning to fail, and you need to start shutting equipment down as part of your diagnostics as you're, as you're driving down the road, because at that point you're, you're beginning to run on borrowed time, and uh, a system may begin to be getting old or getting weak, and uh, it's something that you need to be checked you know, next time you're back, save it home. Max, that just brings up another question to mind. Um, does the charging system, if it fails, does it normally just do a complete shutdown or is it doing a partial shutdown, like where it'll charge but not very well? Um, it's usually a slow death. If it's an immediate shutdown, very often you have a loose battery cable or a loose connector going to the stator or to the rectifier or something like that. 
Um, anything that's immediate, like a light switch, completely on and completely off and back again, would be a good indication to check for a loose connection. Otherwise, generally a charging system that I have always seen, the charging system stops charging, and then you begin to work on battery uh, voltage, and then after uh, a short amount of time, the battery begins to drop below the 13 volts, below the 12.8, 12.5, 12, 12, and as it gets lower, that's when you'll start feeling the bike hiccuping or having a drivability issue if the ignition's beginning to not have enough power to fire the plugs or if the uh, uh, battery's not giving enough power to work the ECU properly. But as far as the charging system itself goes, like when the rectifier goes, if it, if it finally dies, does it sort of slowly start to leak away, or does it just quit? Like, I, I know the bike won't quit because it'll run off the battery. I get that. But I mean, the actual component itself, would it be working one day and then not the next? Uh, yep, it could work one day and then fail the next day and just go out like that. The reason for the slow death is usually... The battery doesn't go bad instantly, and the charging system doesn't go bad instantly. It's usually the charging system will fail, and the battery will slowly get worked down, and that's why you have this you know, kind of slow stoppage of the motorcycle that way. That's because one of the components failed, causing the system uh, not to charge anymore. But it's not like there's brushes or anything like that to, that are in there that are wearing down, and the, and the voltage might have been charging at 14.6 or 14.8 before, and now it's at 14.2 and then 13. It doesn't do that. Well, that would bring up a system that does have brushes. You, they have two brushes. One brush could be making uh, slight contact, um, the other one making full contact, and then you'd begin, that would be a, a system that would be getting to get weak over time. But that's only on older bikes, though. Um, no, a, a modern alternator still has brushes in it. Oh. Um, it's just they're not serviceable. Uh, they don't sell parts and things that you can take those apart and uh, replace those brushes like you can with some of your older bikes. So that has to fail eventually then, doesn't it? The brushes, uh, and I'll speak for BMW, uh, often in the sixty to 70,000 mile range on BMW K bikes that have brush systems in them, um, those will fail. And same thing with some of the uh, early airhead bikes that have brushes, and uh, those will also fail too. Okay, so that should give a pretty basic understanding of how to test um, our rectifier and the understanding of the stator. Is there anything you think we left out there, Max? Um, probably the biggest thing to emphasize is that you know if you're someone that's going to travel a lot or you're just like you're into your motorcycle and you want to be self-sufficient without you know using how always having to just make a phone call and get your bike towed away is, is to really learn your bike when it's working i tell people to use their cell phone take pictures of the meter you know or, or make videos and stuff like that and, you know that way if anything does go wrong you kind of I mean, cell phones can carry so much information um hold all this data you can just refer to that and know exactly what everything's supposed to look like and that helps you diagnose it when it's when it goes bad you know with me with the luxury of a, of a full shop if i have a question or anything or if it's something i forgot what something should be i just check another bike <laughs> so, right you know and even if we're out riding with groups of people we're usually all out with bmws so we can always borrow a part or check something so we you know i'm yeah, that's one of the great things about riding with someone with the same bike, right? Even, like, if, especially if you're doing a long trip and two people you ride the yep. same bike, huge advantage. Yep, yep, yep. I, I like all our delivery trucks are all the same. <laughs> so when I'm trying to fix our delivery trucks, I I can borrow a part from another to the you know. So it's it's really good if uh, if you're riding with your buddies, you all got the same stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's kind of weird you guys all match driving down the road, but <laughs> you, gotta, truck, you, you hang truck, out with like-minded people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it, it does really help because, um, 
you know, just having something else to check and verify and to even leapfrog parts, you know, between, uh, move parts between bikes so you can leapfrog them down the road helps and stuff. All right, Max, thank you very much. Jim, thanks for having me on. Always enjoy the show. I've been speaking with Max Stratton, who is a master mechanic for BMW Motorcycles. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles, tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Green Chili Adventure Gear is also the exclusive USA distributor for Outback Motor Tech, a Canadian company that specializes in high-quality protection for motorcycles. Visit them at www.greenchiliadv.com. Greenchiliadv.com. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, serving adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll need a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, and get this, it comes with a lifetime warranty. It's the pump we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Visit them at CyclePump.com. That's CyclePump.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. And of course, we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. And we did enjoy making it because that was a lot of fun, wasn't it? I love technical stuff. And uh, it's really neat when you can sit and walk through something like this and learn. Absolutely good fun. Hey, if you like what we're doing, you'd like to keep the show coming to you for free, consider dropping by the website www.adventureriderradio.com and dropping us a donation. That helps keep the wheels going here at Adventure Rider Radio. It is built on a model of advertising and donations. I'd like to give a special thanks to our co-producer, Elizabeth Martin, who you probably don't realize this, but in the background, there's all kinds of work that needs to be done, like loads. I'm not going to get into it here, but it's Elizabeth who pulls a lot of this stuff together. Actually, most of it, really. Don't tell her I said that, though. Hey, look, if you haven't got the latest episode of Raw, it's out. It was out a couple of days ago, ARR Raw. You can go to our website, uh, www.adventureriderradio.com, and download it there, or you can get it on iTunes and everywhere else. You can download podcasts. Good fun. We had a great group on there. We had a guest, Renee Cormier, and also Susan Johnson, and uh, there was good stuff on that episode. You'll get a kick out of it. Don't forget, you got to subscribe separately to that one. It's not included with this show, so it's a different feed. So make sure you go there and subscribe separately through iTunes or, like I said, whatever podcast program that you use. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio, and now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. See you next week. Oh, yeah, one more thing I forgot. Uh, don't forget, we're going to be at Can West. That's in British Columbia this summer. We're really stoked about this because we're going to be we're going to be recording Raw live right in front of a studio audience, so to speak. I think the studio might be outdoors. I'm not really sure. But anyway, come on out to Can West and see us there live this summer. I'm Natasha Martin, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.